that's one of my favorite things about touring is the surrealness of nothing, 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 nothing. <laughs> monotony, monotony, monotony. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Explosion. Hello, Cleveland! Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most Spinal Tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in L.A. and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Walendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guest today is Craig Wedren from one of my favorite bands, Shudder to Think, and the mind behind the music for tons of movies and TV shows like School of Rock, Wet Hot American Summer, and Showtime's 2022 Emmy-nominated Yellow Jackets. We're going to talk to Craig about touring Germany soon after the fall of the Berlin Wall, how Epic Records used Michael Jackson as bait to get his band's video on MTV, and why his hometown, Cleveland, was crucial to the success of Bruce Springsteen and David Bowie. So without further ado, let's go to the T-M-E-P show. It really puts perspective on things, so it doesn't it? Not really? too much. It's too much perspective now. Alex, I vividly remember one of the first times we met. I came to your apartment on the east side of Milwaukee to drop off a Falling Willetta's demo. And you answered the door naked for some reason, but I didn't really even notice because of, you know, your anatomy. What I did notice was your long, silky, shiny, infrequently washed dark brown hair. I mean, to be honest, the first thing that came into my mind was this guy looks like Tarzan with a smaller vocabulary. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Alan, in fact, a band that I tour managed in those days, the Samples, gave me the nickname Fabs. Short for Fabio. Oh, (laughs) I thought of that too. As for me, I was sporting shoulder length hair at the time, which I used to great effect in concert. I would bob my head up and down, kind of like Angus Young from ACDC, until one day I realized I was giving myself whiplash every time. I got to be honest with you. I do not remember your hair being that long. Come on, where do you think Bjork got the idea for her hairstyle? (laughs) Anyway... The thing was, at that moment, I must have been 30 at the time, I was harboring a secret. I was losing my hair. In fact, I started noticing my hair falling out probably two, three years before that. But my dad was 70 and still had a full head of hair, and I thought I would too. But you know, the hair gene has nothing to do with your father. It's linked to your mother's father, and my grandpa Ruby was bald as the Mitchell Park Domes. Yeah, nice job working in a Milwaukee reference there. You know, if I can, I will. (laughs) Anyway, we have about 100,000 strands of hair on our head. So it takes years before what you see in the sink turns into what you see in the mirror. And let me tell you, the day you can see your scalp is a day you'll never forget, especially if you're a musician, because rock stars have hair. Well, most do, but you also got to think about Peter Garrett from Midnight Oil, Rob Halford from Judas Priest, Moby, Daughtry, even my former touring mate, Phil Selway from Radiohead, all bald. And Sinead O'Connor. Right, yeah. Yes. 
There are exceptions, but a vast majority of musicians have hair and long hair. Rock and roll has always been associated with long hair. I mean, even Elvis's do was scandalous and it drove the authorities nuts. Speaking of Elvis, did you know that he was born a blonde? (laughs) Really? That's shocking. It's true. He always had lighter hair and he would dye it black. Crazy. When we're talking about hair, especially in the 60s, having long hair identified you as part of the counterculture and against the war. And one of the great protest songs from the Vietnam era is Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's Almost Cut My Hair, when David Crosby, one of my faves, sings, Almost Cut My Hair, Happened just the other day. It was getting kind of long. I could have said it was in my way, but I didn't. And I wonder why I feel like letting my freak flag fly. Yes, he did say freak flag fly. But aside from that, in the end, Crosby decides not to cut his hair because he realizes it's not just a style, it's a statement. And too many people paid too big of a price for David Crosby to go to Floyd's Barbershop get a crew cut, and maybe even a shampoo and a manicure. But then it went the other way, right? You have the hair bands of the 80s, and they weren't protesting anything except maybe good taste. And (laughs) at that point, it was the skinheads who were the ones who were controversial. There's other kinds of manifestations of hair making a statement, right? Bob Marley and the Rastafarians with the dreads. Right. And the punks with the Mohawks, or as they would say in the UK, having a Mohican. True, but in the early 90s when my band was around, grunge brought back hippie hair, you know, with Dave Grohl and Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder Vedder. one that really comes to my mind. But when I realized I was losing mine, I tried everything to hide it, but eventually I realized it wasn't growing back. I remember from that time, Alan, didn't you actually put some sort of black dye on your scalp to try and cover it? Oh, yeah. You remember that? That's embarrassing. Yes. To camouflage it? Yeah, it actually worked really well on stage because it reduced the contrast between the hair and the scalp and whatever. You just wouldn't want to touch it or you'd look like you just wiped without toilet paper. But ultimately, I realized it really was taking up too much emotional energy and I shaved it off all at one time. And from that day on, I lived happily and hairlessly ever after. Well, as our listeners can see now, however... You have really had some hair grow back during COVID. This is very true. It's a family miracle. (laughs) I started growing my hair back during COVID. I had no idea what was there. I'd shaved my head for 20 years, and my hair grew back super thick and curly and black. There's not much in the front, but it's pretty full. Otherwise, I feel like I either Benjamin Buttoned or I Benjamin Franklined. Yeah. (laughs) Another musician who went through the same thing I did and ended up turning baldness into a fashion statement is our guest today, film and TV composer Craig Wedron. And Craig did what I did when he realized he was losing his hair and that was occupying too much of his creative energy. He just shaved it off. And I'm sure he would agree with me now that there shouldn't be a stigma about losing your hair. I mean, I've honestly looked up getting a toupee, not because I'm ashamed of not having hair, but I'd like to have the option. And it is an absolute mystery. Like there are secret handshakes and passwords and backdoors and subterranean vaults and passageways. It's ridiculous how clandestine it is. But you know, I think along with Gap and Gap maternity and Gap odor and Gap kids, 
There should be Gap wigs with thousands of choices <laughs> that you can mix and match. And, you know, honestly, I would change my hair every day. I'd be like the Los Angeles Elton John. It sounds like you have a very good effing perspective on this, Alan. And who knows? Perhaps that's the next entrepreneurial enterprise for you and me. Well, I hope that you will shave your head yeah. <laughs> so that I can turn it into a toupee for myself. I hope that will be our prototype. Uh, well, I could shave my head because I still actually do have a lot of hair, and it's as glorious as ever. <laughs> you know what you are? You're a hairist. You are a hairist. Okay. You'll be canceled. Speaking of canceled, uh, before this show is canceled, F-bombers, please make sure to rate, review, and follow Too Much Having Perspective on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So let's get to Craig, but first, a short break. And now the guy who wrote the music for Adult Swim's Children's Hospital, the comedy series that inspired me to write my web series, CPA Holes. Shudder to thinks, Craig Wedrin. Craig, welcome to Too Much Effing Perspective. Thank you. We have many odd and outlandish things to talk with you about today, <laughs> but let's start with something from Shudder to Think's history that falls squarely in the category of cool. Namely, early in your career, you guys were on one of the coolest indie labels of its era, Discord Records. Can you tell us about Discord and some of the Spinal Tap moments that came along with that experience? <laughs> yeah, sure. So Discord Records was a local Washington, D.C.-based punk label, very DIY, that started in, I think, 1980. It was founded by Ian Mackay and Jeff Nelson from the hardcore band Minor Threat to put out their own records and records by their friends. It evolved into the sort of American indie label that all indie labels kind of took a page from. The most successful band from Discord was Fugazi, who were arguably the most walk-the-walk, fiercely independent, anti-corporate bands of the 90s. They continue to release records occasionally, although I think mostly it's a um, catalog label at this point. You know, Spinal Tap was a British band that tapped into America. Shudder to think when you guys were on Discord, you shuddered into Germany. We sure did. <laughs> yeah, all over Europe, in fact, when we were on Discord, but mostly Germany because we had a uh, German tour manager and booking agent named Toddy. He found like towns within towns and squats <laughs> within squats to book shows. And so we spent what felt like an eternity in Germany during one tour, which in retrospect was an amazing thing. And it was within months of the Berlin Wall coming down. Wow. So you could go to the wall or what was left of it, and it was just rubble. And places where there were parts of the wall that were still up, that were covered in graffiti. And we were on tour with this band called Sync. They're a British punk band. And so I still have photographs somewhere of all of us just kind of hanging out at the remains of the Berlin Wall, which to this day, it's only because of the photographs that I know that this memory is true. Because especially with the passage of time, it's such an historic literally monumental thing 
that I kind of had to check myself and check with Stu, the bass player, and be like, we were actually there right around when the wall came down, right? You're in the middle of history. It was. It was. And then in East Berlin, there was a very, very early rave being held in like a giant building. It was almost like a big New York apartment building had been sort of abandoned. This was early days for electronic music and rave music and house music and things. So it was very exciting. And we were invited by the promoters or whoever to go to this rave and we we're psyched. So we're walking, these few American little spoiled ass tourist <laughs> boys walking into a really gnarly East Berlin squat with just like coming from far away, but you could hear a really booming system. And all of these punks and ravers were rushing out. And we were like, what's going on? And everybody's screaming at us in German and we couldn't understand what the hell was going on. And somebody finally is like, turn around, fire, fire. Ooh. And we're like, oh, fuck. And we like start running out of the building. And we noticed that across the street lining the sidewalk are more and more and more ravers and squatters who are starting to become more and more irate. And we get over there and we look at the building, the building's on fire. And it starts getting more and more crowded and gradually the Berlin Fire Department came and everybody's cheering. Everybody's like, yeah, save our home. And the fire department just stand in between the ravers and the fire trucks, which are not doing anything. Mm. No water, nothing and people understandably are getting more drunk and more angry and people are breaking glass bottles and it's starting to feel very dangerous somehow a lone taxi cab pulls up in the middle of this crowd i kid you not like parting the sea and we didn't even think twice we just dove into the fucking cab <laughs> and we're like get us back to west berlin pronto please and of course there was no news about it there was no record of it but it was Realer than anything I had ever experienced up to that point. Wow. I think that's, just a, that's an uncanny aspect of touring. Being in a different town or city every day, the kinds of people that you have access to, and the fact that a lot of times when you're in a band or with a band, you're invited to a lot of interesting things. Yeah. And you find yourself in some of these very unlikely and uncanny situations. That's one of my favorite things about touring is the surrealness of nothing, 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 monotony, explosion, <laughs> monotony, 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 like things that you wouldn't even think to do because you don't even know that they exist when you're at home. Right. In whatever your little sort of bubble is. It's exaggerated, it's surreal, it's three-dimensional. It's a different way of living. But the boredom is hyper-boredom. The nothing is hyper-nothing. It's really like both extremes. It was too extreme for me. Touring was not my favorite thing because we just didn't get to spend enough time making music. I'm like, I want to get up, I want to make stuff, and then I want to go to bed and I want to hang out with my friends. And I was like not getting up and making stuff, waiting to make stuff, waiting and waiting to make stuff. And the people who were your friends, who you originally set out on this adventure with, you know, it's tough to keep the friend part. 
alive because you just get sick of each other, especially in your 20s. Like, you know, we're all a little cocky, egotistical, inexperienced know-it-alls. I would have gotten on my nerves. I would have broken up with me. <laughs> you know? That's the quote of the day. I would have gotten on my nerves. Yeah. I mean, I can say that about myself too at that age. I should have kicked my own ass. Yeah. I probably did, but not hard enough, clearly. Stuff to reach. <laughs> <laughs> you then made a transition from Discord to what I'd call the heart of the major label universe yeah. with Epic Records. <laughs> And label mates that included Cheap Trick, Heart, Boston, The Clash, and- And, and Michael Jackson. George Michael, Ozzy, Oasis. <laughs> I mean, you were in eclectic companies. <laughs> Since you mentioned Michael, this might be an appropriate story for this podcast. The most successful single off of our major label debut, which was called Pony Express Record, which was a notoriously difficult record, but one that was beloved by a sort of cult crew. Me. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Um, there was a kind of a hit, like a low-level hit off of it called X-French T-shirt. We made a video for it. And supposedly, the deal that Epic made was that MTV would give it a buzz bin that was like the cool thing to have if you were an alternative band in the 90s in return for exclusives on the next Michael Jackson video. <laughs> wow. It took that kind of underhand, under-the-table dealing just to get them to be like, all right, fine, we'll put these characters Unbelievable. on. Unbelievable. So Shudder to Think was part of a Michael Jackson quid pro quo? That's right. We might not have Man in the Mirror without ex-French t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Do you take any responsibility for the activities at the Never <laughs> Neverland? Neverland, right. Neverland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have one more Pony Express record video story, which was that the first video that we made for that record was for a song called Hit Liquor. And it was banned on much music, the Canadian MTV, for, quote, unnecessary necrophilia and cannibalism. <laughs> oh, boy. Maybe that ties into that, the Neverland. <laughs> but unnecessary. Of course. They probably thought liquor was actually L-I-C-K-E-R, yeah, too. Adam Wade, our drummer at the time, we, we were texting the other day and just talking about new t-shirt designs. And he was like, hashtag necessary cannibalism <laughs> like that's a good <laughs> shirt it's the next shutter shirt i had extremely long hair like down to my boobs oh. and it had been a big part of my identity since I was 14, 15. I was like, hair guy. And I was both just starting to notice my hair thinning for the first time, which was mortifying as a rock and roller and like a believer in the 80s and 90s. So I was in this very dark, depressed place in a squat with everybody sitting with their requisite spliffs and cappuccinos and they were talking about whatever they were talking about and i excused myself with long hair to go to the bathroom 
And I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, I need to do something drastic or I'm going to slit my wrists. And so I just shaved my hair for the first time and walked out a totally new person. Craig, I've always thought you and I were kindred spirits. First off, we kind of sing alike. We're crooners. Mm-hmm. So we're not Sammy Hagaring it out there. We're quiet, which means we need good PAs. Otherwise, we have to strain way too hard yeah. and we hurt our cute little voices. Also, like you, I started losing my hair while in my prime band years, and I fought it. My thing was to comb it forward like in a Caesar cut, you know, but it's a losing battle. Yeah. (laughs) And when my sister, Ray Ellen, got cancer and lost her hair, I decided it was a good time to do the same myself. So I shaved my head. And I think, you know, a lot of us face that we're in a very looks-conscious business, Especially post-MTV. It's like if you grew up in the MTV era like we did, you did not not have hair. I think that's a big thing that a lot of people don't understand. Well, because it, it sounds so surfacy and trite, but like it's profound, especially if you're a musician of a certain era. I agree. Well, let me ask you this, because this is really interesting. Craig, you toured with Smashing Pumpkins. Billy had amazing hair Mm -hmm. when people first started hearing about the Smashing Pumpkins, and it wasn't that much longer that he was all of a sudden a bald guy. He made a good transition. I've thought over the years about starting a sort of a Bee Gees thing with Billy and Michael Stipe, like Baldman (laughs) 3. Billy's looking kind of Uncle Festery, though, now with his baldness. But he has such a pretty face, though. He's got a lot more face now, let's just say. Yeah, he's facier. Our million-dollar question, Craig, what is your favorite scene from the movie This is Spinal Tap and why? I mean, look, you could literally put a blindfold and drop a needle on any scene in that movie, and there's a reason to love it. But I'm from Cleveland. (laughs) So, you know, when we saw Spinal Tap when we were, what, 15, we felt seen because by the 80s... Even though it was making a joke of Cleveland, which was pretty much all we did at that point in our lives was complain and joke about where we lived. But even to have Cleveland just sort of name checked in a movie of that historical relevance was very meaningful to us. Isn't that funny? Alex and I are from Milwaukee. So Spinal Tap put us on the map too. And we often played at Shank Hall the club in Milwaukee that was named after the club in Spinal Tap, Shank Hall. And of course, in the film, it's a proper theater. Right. The Shank Hall in Milwaukee is much more of a small contra club with a few hundred people, mm-hmm. but it's a great place. We both played there a bunch. I want to show you something really quick. This will not hit with our podcast audience, which is, of course, audio, but can you see that? Holy shit. Cleveland Public Auditorium. Yeah. Al Belkin. Green, Alice Cooper, David Bowie, 1972, Whoa. Ticket Stubs. Whoa, where'd you get or those? Or 71. I started and gave up quickly a Ticket Stub collection off of eBay. There's a ton from Cleveland. Oh, yeah. Like, I want to go back in time, 1972, David Bowie. Oh, yeah. In Cleveland. In Cleveland. You know? Well, I mean, Cleveland through the 70s was kind of where you wanted to be because they tested out every national act on a Cleveland audience. So like Bruce Springsteen became Bruce Springsteen in large part because of Cleveland. David Bowie's got some like crazy, like weirdly 
Cleveland helped him break America, I guess, because it was right in the middle. And maybe because Alan Freed, the inventor of rock and roll, was a Cleveland DJ. It ah. sort of became that spot. But by the 80s, it was like totally formatted and very, very boring. Hey, listeners, you get to decide for yourselves if there's a reason Alan and I are unheralded musicians. At the end of every episode, we play a song from his band or my band. So stick around. Well, let's talk about your infamous listening party for 50,000 BC, <laughs> your last yeah. great epic album. But let's talk about what Epic thought of it. <laughs> After Pony Express record failed to top the charts, did nicely, but not by Epic Sony standards. We had a big kind of come to Jesus meeting with the brass at Epic. And they were like, listen, for this next record, we need hits. We need you to write at least one thing that we can easily pedal to radio. And we were like, okay, well, like, what's a hit? You know, like closing time. It's a great song, closing time, but it's very far from like what we were thinking and what we were doing. And that was sort of the beginning of like, oh, this may not go the way we had written it. <laughs> and so we made this album called 50,000 BC. It was a very, very labored process during which I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease and was treated for nine months with chemotherapy and radiation, which had the sort of dual effect of bringing us to our knees, but also bringing us closer together at a time when things were really starting to fragment in that classic spinal tap way, right? The sort of Nigel David tension was really starting to gum up the works and really, really make it a drag for everybody. So I got sick, which kind of reminded us all about what's important and that we're friends and a family and that we love each other and we love making music together. And so we made this album called 50,000 BC, which we all really thought, wow, we really nailed the assignment. It's like relatively accessible. And it sounded to us anyway, like the radio. And we were like, it's still super unique, but something that they might be able to pedal out there in the weird, ever-changing world of now what was becoming like corn and boy bands were starting. So it was a very strange moment. On top of which, our A&R guy who had signed us, Michael Goldstone, who had also signed Pearl Jam and Rage Against the Machine. In fact, he signed us because Eddie Vedder was a big fan of our final discord record get your goat and so michael goldstone with just those two signings was like the golden boy at epic while we were making fifty thousand bc he left to co-found dreamworks and we were given an interim a and r team helmed by a woman who had a very different sensibility than we did very different vibe than like Discord. But that was fine. We could make friends with anybody and we were psyched. If she was psyched, great, let's do this. We had planned a big listening party 
And we thought, oh, let's do it at Electric Lady Studios. And we got champagne and food and probably sushi and God knows what else. We're sitting in the control room and everybody arrives. So wonderful. So excited to see you. Hugs. Have a drink. We're all sitting in front. So we're like right up against the mixing board in between the speakers. And we're just like, fuck yes. (laughs) Straight A's right out of the park. High expectations. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, this is good. This rocks. We're an electric lady. Come on. And we get to the last note of the record. There's a beat of silence. And of course, it's like, oh, yeah, they're just like, they're stunned. (laughs) and then the silence continues like past stunned into like oh shit something's wrong and we turn around and it was literally like the vibe was like oh a pair of socks for christmas (laughs) thanks it was literally like thanks thank you okay bye-bye and that was it. And they walked out and we all looked at each other. We were like, oh, shit. Oh, no. That was the first sign that it was like the end of our tenure at Sony. That's painful. My friend Anna Warrenker from the band That Dog and I compose a lot of shows together. And we just did this one called Yellow Jackets on Showtime. And just one of those ones where, like, we loved it. We're like, this is awesome. They want us to make crazy music. We're having a ball. But I think because of our respective experiences in our bands and with the showbiz industry, it's like... The stars rarely all align. You make something that you love with people that you love and it's creative and you think it turned out great and you get the like juice behind you and it connects with the public. And it's not that I don't expect it to happen. It's just that it rarely happens. And when it does, it's such a strange feeling. It's like, What's happening right now with Yellow Jackets and Anna and I did this theme song that people are super jazzed about, which is very 90s-y because the show takes place half in the 90s. It's like a dual timeline. And we were just talking this morning about that weird feeling that's almost sickening. It's slightly sickening when something does connect. You're like, oh, shit. Oh, no. Kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop on the one hand. On the other hand, you're like, I feel really happy about this and it's a relief is the main thing. And hopefully this will be like a beacon to get to do more fun, weird, smart shit. But then the reality is the majority of things that one works on, certainly that I've worked on, only check a few of the boxes. It's like, I love it and everybody loved making it and nobody saw it. Or I loved it and people saw it, but then it was just like totally just forgotten about. It's just like this mystery game that I think actually Spinal Tap expresses in the most tragic comic way. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. I remember going to see Blue Oyster Cult on the Fire of Unknown Origin tour. 
That's actually the album that I was introduced to them on. So I know every song on that it's record. It's a great record. Yeah. It's got Burning For You on it and Psychic Wars and all those yeah. crazy songs. And it was like a huge hit. I remember going with my friend, Tony Clayman, to see Blue Oyster Cult, whatever year that was. And so I was visiting my dad in DC. It was in like a basketball court at a college. And, you know, like a college basketball arena fits I don't know, three to 10,000 people probably. And there were like 220 people there. <laughs> it, it was stunning. We were like, what's going on? It was probably before oh Spinal goodness. Tap, but it was that whole movie in a single event. We we're like, something's weird. Something's off here. I mean, I'm really surprised to hear that. One of the bands I tour managed, Craig, was the Bodines. Mm -hmm. They had places where they could fill a house for sure. Mm -hmm. But I remember on my first tour as a young tour manager, you know, I hadn't been in shows that were in basketball arenas. Yeah. So when a couple were on the itinerary, I just assumed someone knows that they can put enough people in there that it's going to be a basketball arena size show. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple on that first tour that had maybe not even 220 people. Yeah. Maybe less than a hundred. Yeah. It is truly surreal. It is so surreal. And called deflating. <laughs> Only begins to describe it. It feels so horrible. And then you find this like nugget of fuck you where you're like, we're going to tear it up for you two people tonight. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's so much out of our control. I mean, that's why we just try to make the best music we can. I remember yeah. we had just recorded our first album and we wrote all the songs on acoustic guitar. And it was a very, how would you describe the first Falling Willendas album? It's kind of like a heavy pop album, right? But it's very pop. Yeah, definitely. And then all the radio stations are playing Offspring. And we're like, ah, oh, shit. So we naturally, as we got a band, we got a very heavy drummer. Our second album was much heavier. Mm -hmm. And then Counting Crows was on the radio. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it yeah. was like, we're here and they're there. And now we're there and they're here again. But it also just goes back to the thing of like, you can't chase that. No. There's no calculation. There's no combination that cracks that lock. Otherwise, everybody would do it. And when that happens, like when Nirvana gets popular and then suddenly everything starts sounding like sub, 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 sub Nirvana knockoffs, it really becomes a drag. In a way, that's why the second half of the 90s for mainstream rock music was such a drag. It was great for hip hop and R&B because it was creative and it was popping and there was no formula. It was just figuring itself out. And why it was so great for underground music in the 80s and first half of the 90s because there just was no formula. Once the gatekeepers thought that there was a formula, then it really becomes a bummer for most people. You know, it becomes like bitchy and competitive and second guessing. It's the second guessing thing. It's hard enough just to make something in a vacuum and stay sane, let alone when everybody outside is questioning it and comparing it. And, you know, it's hard. That actually reminds me, this is a pretty spinal tappy thing. So it was the very first Shudder to Think tour. We didn't understand how touring worked. We were just like, awesome, we're going to be playing packed clubs. We didn't have a record out. <laughs> I was like 17. We got into a van and we just took off for America. The 
tour was booked, I shit you not, by a guy named Johnny Stiff. Oh, dear. We get to Los Angeles. We're so fucking psyched. It's okay that I'm using swear words. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. We actually bleep out all words that aren't explicit. Got it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's great. It'll be a nice long podcast. <laughs> so... We get to Los Angeles and we had a tradition in the van where whatever city we were pulling into, we would play cassettes because that was all we had at the time of local bands, like as we were rolling in. So we were getting to LA and our collective favorite band, not just LA band, but in general band is X. And so we're like rolling into LA, we're listening to X, we're listening to The Doors, we're listening to Van Halen, we are getting so juiced. Black Flag. Cool. And then Rat comes on and you get deflated. <laughs> no, man, round and round. I'll, I'll roll with that. <laughs> all right, all right, right go. <laughs> It's a great song. Rolling into LA, we have a big show. I guess it was the second day we were there. Um, we're staying at my dad's old buddy's house who grew up to be the in-house doctor at the Playboy Mansion, right? So he was like half oh my personal guy. And at this point, he wasn't living at the mansion anymore. He had this house in the Hollywood Hills and this stunning like Russian mail order bride model type in a kimono answers the door. And we're like, oh my God, we're in Los Angeles. This is so awesome. This is going to be the best. And the next day or whatever, we have the show in Long Beach at Fenders. We're from the East Coast and from DC. So, you know, you hear like LA is really sprawling and the traffic's lousy, but you don't get it until you've spent some time here. And it really takes some strategizing and logistical intelligence to know where to go, when, and how it's all connected. So we have this van. The van is airbrushed van called the Captain's Quarters, which we got and had a chain steering wheel, which we replaced, but it was that kind of a van and shag carpeting and no air conditioning. And I assume it was summer because we were on tour and it was very hot. So we wake up, we're like, you know what? Before we go to Long Beach, which is on the beach, right? We should go to Venice because it's like Venice, man, because the doors, right? We got to check it out. And X, that was where like John and Xene met, got a Venice poetry thing. So we're like, cool, let's go pay homage to Venice, not realizing that they're like very far away from each other. Columbus wouldn't have made that trip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was just dumb. It was dumb. And um, we got on the road and I had some LSD with me. And I was like, you know what would be a good idea, 17-year-old Craig? Let's take some LSD in the shag carpet van on the 101 and go to Venice and like really do it right. And then we're just going to go rock Los Angeles <laughs> in Long Beach. Yeah, yeah. It's like a WWJD, but instead of, you know, what would Jesus do? It's like, what would Jim Morrison do in that situation? Of course. It was 100%. Yeah. So we get in the van. It's boiling hot. It's absolutely wall-to-wall -wall traffic. We're stuck trying to get from Hollywood to Venice, and we're probably taking the dumbest route. This was way pre-ways. Needless to say, I didn't have a whole lot of restraint at that point in my life, and my timing was way off. So that by the time we got to Venice, I was already feeling 
crashed and miserable. Everybody in the band was unhappy because we had just endured this couple hour horror ride. We had about 10 minutes to dip our toes into the ocean before we had to get back into the traffic and make our way to Long Beach. We get to Long Beach, to Fenders, and the club is chained shut. <laughs> so it, it's just not even open. And there was just this one teenage Japanese kid who had a fanzine but didn't speak English who was sitting by the front door who had just been like crashing on people's couches trying to do interviews with bands for his zine wherever he had heard there was a show. He's still there. I think he's, he's still, still doing it. <laughs> Somehow we got in touch with Johnny Stiff, who got in touch with the promoter, who was like, yeah, we didn't do any promotion for this show. There just wasn't very much interest. So we just figured we would cancel it without telling you. And we were like, fuck no, man, you're doing this show. That's what the contract says. So they open up the club and we played post acid in a room that holds I would say a thousand people for a Japanese punk rock kid and a crew of bouncers. And that was our first LA show. And I just remember how miserable I felt and how crushed and how disheartened and then just how important it was to kill, to just fucking destroy and play the best possible set that we could ever play for no one. And so we did. So, Craig, where can our listeners learn more about you, your current projects, your music, all that kind of stuff? You can go to my website, craigwedron.com. And I'm on social media, just at Craig Wedron. Instagram is probably where I do the most stuff, but I do a little TikToking here and there and some Twitter when I feel super brave and Facebook when I absolutely have to. When you want to destroy the underpinnings of our democracy. Yeah, that's all me. I'm all the bots. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but Russian bots here. Cool. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's really been a lot of Thanks, fun. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, really a pleasure. Alex, we were talking about the whole hair issue, and you know, it's all part of this whole image issue with rock music, right? I had a band before Women's Liberace, and one of the reasons why we didn't get signed is because we didn't have a good look. The record label said that. We kind of dressed as we were, and we looked like a bunch of Milwaukee guys on stage. What was your issue with style? Were you able to crack it ever? Well, other than not really having any, I think one of our funniest, it was a total Spinal Tap moment, is we had a great gig opening for Material Issue, which was a big Chicago band at the time. They were playing in Milwaukee. And it was the first time we were playing with our new guitar player. We didn't discuss wardrobe ahead of time. And the three of us who were existing in the band all wore kind of dark clothes. I don't know if we look cool, but we all at least were somewhat coordinated. And he showed up wearing like white jeans and a polo shirt. Which <laughs> <And laughs> was probably fancy. We were a little him. out of sync, although I think we sounded pretty good. But, you know, there was really zero attention paid to style, just like there wasn't any attention 
to style in Milwaukee in general, right? Then I go to Chicago <laughs> and fashion was really well. important and we really upped our game. And I just remember buying really expensive clothes and all this while this is happening, I'm trying to figure out what to do with my hair. You know, if you look at Shudder to Think, Craig was talking about having hair down to his boobs and then he shaved it and went bald. And I bet there was a stylistic change in terms of their haut couture as well. If you look in their second album, there's a picture of all of them and they're dressed to the T. That was part of the image. It was very important for us to look good as well as to sound good. Hair for millennia has been associated with power, right? Sorry to go Old Testament on you here, chum, but you know even the story of Samson from the Bible, he is powerful until Delilah cuts his hair off and then everything goes sideways for the guy. All the way up to modern times where there was so much coverage of Donald Trump's hair and the efforts made by him to keep it intact. Again, a power move. There is something to that. But I do think that at this point, we've actually really evolved. And examples like Billy Corrigan, like Michael Stipe, these are some of our biggest stars. They have no hair on the top of their heads anyway. So we're in a different place now. There's still a stigma to not having hair. And I feel it being someone who doesn't have hair. To go biblical on you yet again. We all have our crosses to bear, old chum. You know what? Job wouldn't pack in the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> he would be opening for Harry Styles because Harry's got such great hair. <laughs> Thanks to Craig Wedren for sharing important life advice on our show just for you, listeners. When things aren't going your way, you're feeling deflated, and maybe you even feel like giving up. What did Craig say about that? You find this, like, nugget of fuck you? Hell yeah! And you power on. Speaking of powering on, crank it up to 11. Get in on the joke and watch This Is Spinal Tap again like it was the first time on iTunes or Amazon Prime. Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. This episode was edited by Gretchen Kilby, music by J.K. Harrison. Please follow us on Stitcher, Podcast Addict, Pocket Cast, CastBox, Overcast, or wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at TMEP Show, and join our mailing list on our website. That's tmepshow.com. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Final Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. This is Alan Keller. On behalf of Alex Hoffman and myself, thanks for listening. We're going to wind things down with a Falling Willenda song called The Adorable Horrible, which has subdued vocals on top of a heavy track that was a hallmark of my band sound, as well as Craig's Shudder to Think. See you next time on Too Much Effing Perspective! Say, I followed you to a grave with all intention.
Tux was a rental 